You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Verse 6. Let's read it together. I, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer, every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Awesome, awesome passage. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of good teachers in the world, in the church, but there was one that I think we would say probably is the number one teacher of all time. And that would be who? I hope you say Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Jesus taught in a number of different ways. He would teach to large groups of thousands of people. He would teach to a small group, maybe, of his disciples. He would teach through miracles. He would teach through parables. We could spend years on parables, just on the, on the parables that he spoke. He would speak one-on-one sometimes to people, right? And he would sometimes speak rather mildly and calmly and and lovingly. Other times he would speak rather harshly when he was, you know, throwing tables around in the temple. He wasn't too happy. But he would also teach using questions. And I, I like to learn and I like to teach people using questions. Because what happens when somebody asks you a question? The first thing you do, your mind opens up, your mind starts thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to answer? You know, what am I going to say when somebody asks me a question? And so the first three verses of, these, of, these, of this passage today, I want to deal just within verses 3, 4, and 5. I want to deal with just one part of that, and it's called the participation or partnership in the gospel. Now, if I was going to ask you this question, we could stay here all day, I guess, if I let you answer it, but how would you define the gospel? The gospel, the word gospel, is not, you know, the actual gospel that sounds like the word gospel is not in the Greek. You can't find, you can find the word that we translate as the gospel, but it doesn't sound like gospel. Gospel is an old English word, and Joe's maybe taught on this before, because one of the things around here I've noticed since I've been here is that the word gospel is used a lot, right? We have gospel communities. We don't have home Bible studies or small groups, right, Chris? We have gospel communities. Right? That's cool. We have gospel everywhere. Because it's important. Paul is saying he's, thank, he's so thankful that they are participating or partnering with him in the gospel. So we have to know what the gospel is. I don't know how many, how many of you have read, if you go online and read what we believe about the gospel at the well. Have you ever done that? Look online and see what our you know, articles of faith are. It's kind of interesting. I did. But... The main part that we probably all understand greatly when we talk about the gospel is this. We are passionate about the gospel centrality. We believe the gospel is the good news of what God has graciously accomplished for sinners through the sinless life, sacrificial death, and bodily resurrection of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, namely our forgiveness from sin and complete justification before God. That is the good news. That old English word, where gospel came from, 
literally was, was pronounced Godspell. And it wasn't God like capital G-O-D, God. It was the word good. Spell. Good news. Good message. And that's exactly what, if you look at the Greek word, I'll put on my teaching hat for a minute, but if you look at the Greek word, which the New Testament, as you all know, hopefully was written in Greek, the, the word that's used there literally means a good messenger. And right in the middle of the word is the word for angel. And we've, we've taken that word angel out of, out of <coughs> angelos, out of Greek, and have turned it into the word angel because we didn't really have a word like that in English. We made one up out of Greek or Latin, wherever it came from. But it literally meant, and, and an angel is what? Is a messenger, right? A messenger from God. And so the gospel is a good message, right? So we didn't, you know, the Greek language didn't have the gospel of Jesus Christ for a long time, so they didn't have a good word for gospel. But that, that word gospel is, Translated in a number of different ways. It means to evangelize. We don't say we go out and gospelize, right? We go out and evangelize to turn people to Christ. And so the gospel is that message of what Jesus did in his life, death, his burial, and most importantly, his resurrection. For our justification, right? So that's the, the internal message. But we add something here in the, in our, on our website that I think is very interesting. When it says the gospel is not only the means by which people are saved, but also the truth and power by which people are sanctified. Big holy word, right? It is the truth of the gospel that enables us to genuinely and joyfully do what is pleasing to God and to grow in progressive conformity to the image of Christ. Now, you won't remember all that that I just read, but I would encourage you to go online and read this particular section, what we believe about the gospel. Because we use that term here on purpose a lot. Because it's not just, I mean, the message itself is great, that what Jesus has done, we never want to forget that. That's the key, the centrality of all that we do. But what the gospel does in transforming our lives to make us live in a different way than we did in our B.C. days, as I call them, before Christ days. After we come to Christ, we live a different way, hopefully, right? So that's the, that's the essence of, <coughs> of the definition of the gospel. So that word, that word is you know, used a lot in the New Testament over 100 times because it's so important. And Paul says it right here. He says, I'm so thankful that you are participating in the gospel. So that's the other word. We have the gospel, and we have the participation or the partnership. And this, the word that's used there is the same word that we use for fellowship. So some, some translations will use the word fellowship. So fellowship is, is a uniting together of, of common purpose and common beliefs to celebrate a particular event, right? And so fellowship to us is extremely important. Not just, you know, here on Sunday morning, this is a Great crowd this morning. And wasn't that worship great this morning, by the way? That was awesome. And so that, that's an important part of gathering together as believers is to share with each other, to pray, to fellowship. But we don't get into super, super like deep relationships necessarily in a large church gathering. We do that in other places, don't we? Gospel, gospel community. So that's the beauty of the gospel, to participate 
right, to partnership, to fellowship with other believers that believe like you do. And in today's world, I'm telling you, <laughs> we need this more than ever. Because we, we live in a very hostile world, not just... And we used, we used to think the hostile world was outside of our own boundaries, right? Outside of the United States. Well, that's not the case anymore. The hostile world has moved in here. Not in here, but it's moved all around us. And we have to experience it every day. And the gospel, you, can't, you cannot live out the gospel by yourself. You need people to rub shoulders with, be it just your partner, be it your family, friends, church members, all. We need that sort of, of warmth together. <laughs> so that's just the introduction, really. If you look at you know, Romans 10, 9 and 10, has anybody memorized that? If we confess the Lord Jesus... We, oh, no, I forgot how the thing goes. <laughs> Read it for me. Oh, there it is. Somebody put that on there. <laughs> I was going to do 1 John 1, 9. That didn't seem to fit very well. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And that, Paul is probably one of the, he can be one of the most difficult people to understand, but in a lot of cases he's, he's the simplest. This is one of the simplest messages you can have right here about how we actually take that first step to become a Christian. And so I want to go to these three points <clears throat> out of Philippians 1.6. Remember it said, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So point one is pretty obvious. We have a beginning. Our gospel journey has a beginning. So for those of us in this room who planted that stake, no matter how many years ago in the ground and said, this is the day, that I gave my heart to Jesus. I like the idea of planting a stake because it's just something that's permanent. You drive it in the ground and you put a little date on it, not a tombstone, but a reminder that this is the day where I turned my life around. And I, I remember that day as if it was yesterday. Because I came with I came with baggage, I came with all sorts of things. Like I told you, I was raised in the Christian Science Church. Let me, let me just, I like stories. You probably know that by now. But my sister and I, I couldn't have been five. Because I remember the house. I was upstairs in the house, and she was four years older than I was. <clears throat> and she made me pray every night before we went to bed, went to sleep. Right? And we'd, play, we'd pray two prayers, the same prayers every night. The first one was, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake I pray the Lord my soul to take. Did you ever pray that when you were a kid? You pray that every night. Well, then we also prayed one that you're going to go, a five-year-old prayed this. This is a prayer that we were taught in the Christian Science Sunday School. My dad would drop my sister and me off at Christian Science Church in a little town south of Seattle, Washington, and he would never go to church. He'd stick us there. So we went into Sunday School, and we learned this prayer. And it starts out by saying, there is, now pay attention because these are big words, there is no life, truth, in substance, or intelligence, no, there is no life, truth, intelligence, nor substance in matter. All is infinite mind, 
an infinite manifestation. Now, what the heck did I just say? <laughs> you understand that? I don't. <laughs> and that was when I was five, and I still don't know what that means. <laughs> that, and so that was my background in any kind of religious teaching. My grandfather was a, was a Christian science practitioner, which was their idea of a pastor. And so they would read out of the Bible on Sunday, but they would also read out of their own book, which was written by their founder. And that's where you would find this crazy little prayer about matter, all is infinite mind and infinite manifestation. That changed my life. But that's, that was what I came into, into salvation with. I had almost no church background. I, my, my other grandparents were Lutherans, and so at least I got occasionally in a Lutheran church, I'd hear the gospel. Or my, my grandmother loved to watch Billy Graham, so I, did, I, I watched that a few times. So I, I just had this understanding somewhat. But I always believed that there was a God. And I would talk to him sometimes. You know, so I, I, I understood that he was there, but I didn't really know who he was. So when, the neat thing about when a person like that, I was almost 26 years old when I turned my life around and gave my life, my life to Christ. And immediately, it doesn't matter what age you do it at, you might have come when you were four or 10 or 70. Or it doesn't matter. But immediately when I prayed that prayer, when I understood what I had done, my whole worldview changed. It was like overnight. I looked at people differently. I looked at government differently. I looked at the world differently. I looked at school differently. Because my, my worldview had totally, 100%, did a turnaround. And that's what happens. As you begin to grow then, you begin to see some of the dumb things you used to I was raised in the 60s, so I had a lot of dumb things in my mind. And unfortunately, in the 60s, there are still effects being felt today because of what happened in the 60s and the overthrow of the establishment. That was the idea. Nothing was sacred. Church, of course, was one of those establishments that had to be thrown out. right? And yet, in the 60s, when the Jesus movement started, people were so hungry because they had thrown away everything in their belief system. They were so hungry for something real that the Jesus movement really took, took hold and grew. Fortunately, I didn't accept him then. I waited about 10 years. But that's what happens when you become a believer. There's nothing, there's nothing like it of what happens in your mind and in your heart and in your understanding than when you become a believer. So I guess that's my first prayer, that everybody in this room is a believer. But we all love to hear people's testimony. The journey, our gospel journey, has a beginning. We love to hear people share their testimony because testimonies are as different and as unique as people. There's not one of us in this room that is not uniquely created by God in a different, to look not just look differently, but in all of our backgrounds, in all of our thought processes, our abilities, our experiences that we have done throughout our life makes us extremely unique. And so every, I love hearing, like at baptismals where, where people share their testimony. 
because it's always cool to listen to. And so that's the beginning. You have to, the gospel journey has to have a start. He, he says, <coughs> excuse me, I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you. Point number two, our gospel journey is a continual, ever-changing walk. Now, this is where we could spend, once you start on this journey, oh my gosh, either all hell breaks loose, or I remember the, I call it the honeymoon days after we were saved. Everything was so cool, everything was rose, this is awesome, I can't believe we, we found people that you know, believe like we do, and, and God is so good, and we're going all this, the right direction, and everything's just wonderful. And then the first bump in the road hits. The gospel journey that we live every single day of our lives changes. It's, const- it's continual, but it constantly changes. Why? Because of different events that take place in your life and in my life. Some of those events aren't very nice. They're not very good. They're not helpful. They're rather dark. Or death. The loss of a loved one. Loss of a job. Things, all of a sudden you realize, geez, these things still happen to me. I gave my life to you. What's going on here? I'm still struggling with stuff. Sin is not all gone. Why? This nature of the walk. Sometimes it seems rather dark on that journey. Don't you think? You have some events in your life, I bet that have caused you to ask the question, is the light still on? Can I see where I'm going? I'll tell you another story. (laughs) I went to the University of Washington in Seattle. In my my junior year, I decided to study abroad. So I enrolled in a school in southern France. I was going to be a teacher. That was my goal. never did teach, but I did that for a while and thought, ooh, that's not for me. But anyway, I... I went, I went there, my first stop was Paris, France. And from there, I was going to go south on a train and go down to the school where I was going to be for a year. I was not even 21, I was, I was 20. I was young and, and knew hardly any French. And I got to the, we landed about midnight at night. I had a friend who had reserved me a hotel room in a part of Paris. I had, the, I had him arrange that for me, so at least I, I had a room. Stay. I had the taxi take me over there, drop me off on this little tiny street. And this, I mean, you and I, when we go to a motel, it looks like a motel, right? I mean, it's pretty obvious. There's an office, there's places to go to check in, blah, blah, blah. But this was just the address on the top and the door. That was it. So I had to believe, first of all, that it was a hotel. Secondly, I didn't know how to get in. So I, there's a little light down on the left hand side, like a doorbell, right? So this will be cool. I can wake somebody up. So I pushed the doorbell, and the door opened. So, oh, that's cool. When it's dark, as I'll get out, and there's this little light over on the, on the wall. And so I, it was old-fashioned lights. You, know, you had to turn the knob the old-fashioned way, you know, not a touch. So I turned it on, grabbed my two heavy suitcases and my backpack and all this stuff, and I started upstairs. And it's, I was about halfway up, and the light goes out. And so, I mean, it's pitch black. And so I went back. I, Disgusted, went back downstairs, turned that light back on, started back upstairs again, and I got about halfway up, and the light goes out again. So, 
takes me a while, I'm kind of dumb, but it's like, that light obviously is on some sort of a timer or something. So I went down, turned that light on, and I grabbed my bags and I ran up the stairs as fast as I could. I got to the door of the room number six or whatever it was, and boom, the light goes out. So at least I was at my room. I found out, they found out the next day that this is called a minute light. Well, thanks for telling me a minute to get to your room. So I thought of that when I was thinking about this passage about our walk sometimes. As we're walking along and we can see where we're going, and all of a sudden, the light goes out. We have no idea what God's trying to do. Someone in your, in your family gets sick or, or dies or you lose your job over something and it's like, God, where are you? There's, there's some things that happen to people, depending on, again, depending on your experiences, some things that happen to you really trigger you or trigger me to get really down, to get really, you know, just... It's like, I don't, I don't like this kind of darkness. It's not something that I like. I need to somehow fix it. I need to get that light turned back on so I know where I'm going. We have to know where we're going. <laughs> James says that, and you know, I, I love the passage in James chapter 1, but it kind of it annoys me, to be honest with you. Is it count it all joy when you encounter various trials? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Yeah, right. Right? Doesn't always work that way, does it? But count it all joy, first of all. I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to have, not just get excited and be stupid, I'm supposed to have joy. I'm supposed to have the joy of the Lord in the middle of a trial. I don't know how many times you and I have been successful at doing that when a trial hits to really be. Joyful in the sense that I know God is in control. I know God will bring this to a completion. I know he will bring it to an end. And I know he'll walk me through it, no matter what happens. We don't necessarily always say that in the beginning. But he says it produces patience. Another thing that Americans aren't really good at. But patience. And that patience, when it has its final work, produces endurance. Right? And endurance is strength. Like when you work out and, and you, after a year of working out, you all of a sudden you really feel that you can you know, walk down the block and not get tired. You can pick up things. You can work around the place and you don't get tired. There's an endurance that comes with working out. And that's the idea of, of these, these tests. And these trials are not temptations. They're not, they're not something that tempts you. God doesn't put these sort of things in our life to tempt us to do wrong. He puts them in our lives to test us or allows them to happen, to test us, so that we, if we are victorious, will we'll learn to be patient. And then, once that has its perfect work, we'll be strong. And that, that's why this ever-constantly changing walk that we are involved in, this gospel journey, so it can seem so long, that long and winding road that, that has to be somehow balanced in such a way. Do you, I'll just ask you another question. Because I know how I would answer it. Is, do you always do that which is right? I'd be the first to say. But the, the cool thing about the Christian life is this. That God doesn't look at you 
that way. God doesn't look at you the way you look at yourself, the way I look at myself. He looks at me in a whole different light. And so that he gives me the opportunity when I screw up that I can go to him. That's where 1 John 1, 9 is another favorite verse of mine. If we confess our sins, sometimes even publicly confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? You believe that? I do. You have to. Because you soon realize after you become a Christian that you didn't become perfect. <laughs> I know I didn't. And I can, I can say we all didn't. I can say that with, with gusto, that we did not become perfect. We became perfect in his sight because of the blood of Jesus Christ. But in our life walk, we have to learn and I don't know how Jesus learned obedience, but they said he did. He learned how to be his earthly parents and his heavenly father. So he lived a sinless life. You and I don't. Why else do we need Jesus in the first place? We don't need him if we're perfect. And we don't need him afterwards. We be, after we accept him, we don't need him if we're perfect. But we don't. We need him all the time. And that's the... That is the cool thing about this. You know, Balanced Christian Life, there's a, I can't remember who wrote it. Some of you remember, but there was a, there's a book from the 70s. Okay, I'm going back again. It was from, called the, the Balanced Christian Life. And it, we have, balanced means, you know, your Christian life is not static. It doesn't stay the same all the time, right? It changes oftentimes every day. But it changes a lot because of your circumstances. How many of you have a job? I don't. I'm retired. Ha uh-huh. <laughs> But I had a job for a long time. I did the same job for 42 years. And so if I go back, if you go back to when you first started your job and look at you where you are today, maybe that was a year down the road, maybe that was two years, five years, ten years ago that you started your job. If you look at yourself today, are you different than when you were back then? Do you know different things? Have you learned some things at your job that you didn't know when you first started? I hope so, or you've probably gotten fired. You grow. You grow in everything that you attempt to do. Well, Christian life is no different. Where we were, you know, in the year 2000, hopefully now in 2019, we're a little different. We don't just look different. We are different because we've tackled some things that we've been forced to tackle in those years. I mean, golly, we'd only have to go back last week, right, to find where God has put us in this situation. We moved two families this week. Two of my daughters moved the same week. And so old dad got a little tired. Because one night, literally, on Wednesday night, I was so exhausted that I, my muscles just kind of went, yeah. and I thought, I can't. I can't do this tomorrow. They don't need me tomorrow. I need a day off. But that, so you don't have to go back very far to see where God has put circumstances and events in your life that have caused you to react in some way. So you, you evaluate, how did I react? How did I handle that situation? It wasn't a very good situation, but how did I handle it? Did I screw it up? Or did I, did I do it right? Did I rely on God to finish what he started? And that's the beauty of the Christian life. It always is changing. Have you ever tried to balance it? I, always, I told you Christian life's not static. It doesn't stay the same. It always changes, right? So in a balanced Christian life, 
it's like keeping your balance. Oftenly, oftentimes is interesting if you're on a boat that's rocking back and forth. But have you ever taken a broom and tried to hold the end of the broomstick on your finger? And if you hold it there, but if you just hold it there and, and not move your finger, the broom falls off, right? But if you move this way or that way to try to keep that broom from falling down, you can keep it going for a long time. And that, that's not static. That's ever-changing energy that's keeping that broom in the air. The Christian life is the same way. We're over here on this side one day. We're over here on this side the other day. We're doing this this day. We're doing this the other day. We have this problem to tackle this other day. And so we're constantly moving back and forth to try to keep ourselves on the right path. Now the beauty about the gospel, one thing I want you to, to really take home today, not just that, that Christian life is, is a journey and can, can be a long and winding road, but it is a permanent thing. Not something you decide to do today and then give up tomorrow. It just doesn't happen. The gospel is permanent. He is with you. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He always, he's always there. And if he calls you his child, would you ever have your, you, your child can make you so angry, right? Maybe I'm the only one, but <clears throat> kids can exasperate you, right? Parents can exasperate children. But does that mean in that exasperation we say, you're no longer my child? Or you're no longer my dad? You're no longer my mom? That isn't the way it works. You sit down with that rebellious child or you sit down with a rebellious spouse or whatever it is, and you deal with it. As painful as it is, because that person is your mate. That person is your child. You're not going to just dump them on the side of the road somewhere. God doesn't do that either. You belong to him. He's yours, whether you like it or not. And you're his. Ever-changing walk. Anybody been a Christian for, say, more than 20 years? All you old guys, raise your hand. Just think, just 20 years. I go back 40, whatever. <laughs> and I, I think about what he has done in all those. Are you different than you were 20 years ago? And I mean different from a growth standpoint, from a positive standpoint. Are you still happy to be on that road to completion? Because this is where it gets really good, because he says that good work that he started in you, he will what? He will finish it. When? At the day of Jesus Christ. You know, this is where it gets mysterious. You know, I think about none of us, you know, has died yet. We're still alive here. God hasn't, you know, Jesus hasn't come back yet. Second coming hasn't taken place, right? Hope not, because I missed it if I did. So Paul talks about a mystery in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I love this verse in chapter 15, verse 51. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. 
we shall not all sleep, but we all will be changed. Now that mystery is not some like you read a mystery novel, you're trying to figure out what the ending is, you can't, you know, the clues that they give you, trying to figure out who did what. That that's a mystery, a, a book that you call a mystery. That's that's not this idea of mystery that Paul's talking about. A mystery is revealing something that's never been revealed before. And Paul is saying, I'm telling you something that you've never heard before. That's the mystery. We will not all sleep. That's not going to bed at night and sleeping. We're talking dying. So there will come a time when those who are alive at his coming will be with him. And so they will not experience that sort of death that millions and millions and billions have experienced since day one. So either we go that way, I prefer that, or we go the other way, where we go, Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. You can go that way. So there is an end in this particular case. There's not an end to our life in Christ. There's an end to our journey here, now, at this place, on earth. There will come a time when that's over. So, you know, what do you want written on your tombstone? If you do happen to die before Jesus comes back, what do you want him to say about you? Who was the famous actor that Again, way back, forty. He was so weird. He was a drunk. <laughs> he on his tombstone said, "I told you I was sick." <laughs> so I want I want something else on my tombstone. You know, I want something on there that would remind people of something about who I was. Right? So do you. Tombstone is just a. It's for us. It's not where we are. We're not there anymore. But it's just a remembrance, right? We don't do that as a side trip, but we don't do that as Christians, do we? You think of the Old Testament times. They were always building a memorial everywhere they went. Oh, this is cool. What happened here? Let's put some stones down to make a memorial. Or at the Transfiguration, Peter says, oh, we should build something here. This is cool. What happened? here? Because, that, because they wanted to remember. Well, we do have one thing that we do that is a remembrance, isn't it? That's what we do at the end of every service. We remember with something that we can touch and taste and feel. We remember that one important event in our life. That is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the memorial that we want to build. But we, as, as people, we want to remember things. You know, I, the older you get, I'll, I'll warn you, you do forget some things. Okay? When somebody like 20 or 30 or 40 forgets things, I say, oh, come on, you've you got a long ways to go before you start forgetting stuff, so get with the program. So it's learning new things, learning and experiencing new things in our Christian walk doesn't depend necessarily on just age. You know, the older you are and the longer you've been a Christian, hopefully you have some experiences that will help you deal with the next one, right? Or someone else will have an experience that helps me deal with the next one. And so that's, that's the ever-changing one. But the last thing that we can say is it does have a completion, and someday we will bring an end to this long and winding road. Don't wish it to end. You know, just live one day. Don't just wait. You know, and say I'm, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to wait for the Lord to come. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going up on a mountain with my white robe, and I'm going to sit there and wait till Jesus comes back. That isn't how it works. 
That's not how it works. We are meant. What did we say in our statement of faith? It's not only the means by which we're saved, but also the truth and power by which people are sanctified. Sanctified is a fancy word for made holy, made set apart for God. It is the truth of the gospel that enables us to genuinely and joyfully do what is pleasing to God and to grow in progressive conformity to the image of Christ. That was the original intent way back in creation. Be like God. Not quite there yet. But we can walk in the likeness. We can participate. And that's why you were having a hard time, Eric, remembering that word participate this morning. I thought that's interesting because that's a word that's so important to this passage. We need to participate or to partner with others in the gospel. And that's where I want us to respond today. Well, I want us to respond in a couple ways. One is, if you haven't begun that journey yet, from Philippians 1.6, do it. doesn't matter, you know, the word, you know, there's sinner's prayer, there's, uh, there's different ways that people, Billy Graham did it one way, and, you know, there's <clears throat> navigators did it another, but it's always bringing you to a point where you recognize that you're a sinner, and there's nothing you can do to fix it yourself. Somebody has to fix it. Or else why did Christ die if we could fix it ourselves? Sins were always dealt with by the shedding of blood. Gruesome were there when Jesus was crucified. We wouldn't have enjoyed that show at all. But it had to happen. As, as Pastor Joe says, the bloody cross, empty tomb. Without the empty tomb, of course, then he was a fraud. But he wasn't. Rose from the dead, why? Paul says, for the just for our justification, our being made right before God. So that'd be my first question. Are you at that point? Have you made that? Have you planted that stake? Can you tell someone if they ask you? Can you give them an account of what your hope is in Christ? Can you do that? We do that. Secondly, then, on your journey. You're on a journey still. If you're a believer, you're on a journey. And it hasn't stopped yet. Even if you get sick or you're, you're in bed, sometimes that's a good way to, to just kind of take a breather and, and think about what it is I'm going to do when I'm well. You know, so we're always doing something. We're always active in this Christian life. And it's it's a fun thing to participate in. It really is. When you see God change people's hearts, it's cool. So where are you on that journey? I know where I'm at. Where are you at? What is right now? What is blocking your way? What's kind of dimming that light? What's actually even making it seem dark for you? Someone has to turn that light back on. Something bugging you at your job. Something in your family. Somebody's sick. Somebody you haven't seen for a while. Somebody that's estranged from you. All kinds of things. Roadblocks. That are put in the way. So think about that as we participate in communion. But let's, let's close this message in prayer and just ask God to, to do what it is he wants to do with me 
with you today. Father, we thank you this morning for knowledge, just for who you are and what you've done. We can never, we could pray 24-7, Father, and never fully express our love for you and what you've done for us. So we ask you, Lord, today as we think about where we are on this walk of life that we're on, that Lord, uh, what it is maybe today that we need to do to change course, to, to trust you, to just take that trial and give it over to you so that we would, we would learn to be patient before you and that, that we would become strong because of that. <clears throat> Help us, Father, to be different next year when we celebrate 2020 than we were today in 2019. Protect us, Father, from evil. Protect us, Father, from those things outside that would resist your gospel. Help us to have opportunities to, to share that with whoever we come in contact with, that we'd know what to say, we'd know what to do, and that your spirit would give us guidance in everything that we do and the decisions that we make. I thank you, Father, for your love for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.